inch by inch, row by row, gonna make this garden grow, gonna mulch it deep and low, gonna make it fertile ground, inch by inch, row by row, please bless these seeds I sow, please keep them safe below till the rains come tumbling down. Welcome to Access Utah, this is Sherry Quinn. The typical American meal contains, on average, ingredients from at least five different countries. You've probably noticed asparagus at the grocery store from Peru, tomatoes from Mexico, and fish from Vietnam or Russia, beef from Australia. Not only are the distances that food travels from farm to market important, but the modes of transport also have a large effect on how much pollution is generated. For example, importing food by airplane results in far greater emissions of greenhouse gases than imports by ship. In most cases, locally produced food proves the best choice for minimizing global warming and other pollutants. The effects of all this pollution may be reflected in the high rates of asthma and other respiratory problems. As part of our ongoing Farm Action series, today we present farmer Antonia Partridge. She lives in Willits, California, in her gray water solar-powered home with her husband and her one-and-a-half-year-old daughter. She gravitates to farming and has cultivated her own impressive garden at home, complete with 14 fruit trees and a large home bounty of vegetable crops. Antonia is also a natural teacher. She managed a children's garden in Willits and now is directing a farm school for adults at the Ridgewood Ranch called the California State Grange School of Agricultural Arts. It is a blank canvas right now, and Antonia is in the beginning stages of sculpting a work of agricultural art. And it's a project of the California State Grange. And the Grange is a historical, longest-running association of farmers and agricultural activists that was started in the 1870s. In November, coming up is the National Grange Association, and the Grange has lobbyists that work on a wide variety of agricultural-related law and policy, things like Farm Bill. On a recent warm, slightly windy fall afternoon, Antonia gave me a guided tour of the farm site and offered the farm school plan. Every sentence was a brush stroke towards the big picture. So we just turned off Highway 101 onto Ridgewood Ranch, and it's a 5,000-acre ranch, uh, about a two-and-a-half-hour drive north of San Francisco or west of Sacramento. And basically all the land we can see now, this whole valley, is owned by the ranch on both sides of the freeway. And the big turnout we just passed will become the site for the new Grange Farm School farm stand where we'll be able to have farm sales on the farm site. Um, But because of the Highway 101 frontage and the big turnout and the high visibility and the easy access, I think it's really going to help make marketing easy having that really visible, easy access farm stand site. And then the farm land, the 5,000 acre ranch, um, had been home, that noise was crossing a cattle grate. (laughs) In the 1930s and 40s, the land was owned by Charles Howard, who was the owner of Seabiscuit the racehorse, and Seabiscuit is buried here on the ranch, and then the land was purchased by the Golden Rule Association, which is a non-profit group, and it was about 100 back to the landers 
who moved here in the 1960s and they put the land into nonprofit status and our landlords the Golden Rule Association is very supportive of the vision for the Grain Jag School project and they've given us a sweetheart deal of a lease um, we're leasing about 10 acres and we can just start to see the field it's right over there we stopped atop the hill above the farm site to learn a little more about this area made famous by the charming racehorse who caught the hearts of millions of Americans in the film Seabiscuit. Charles Howard and his family lived, and Seabiscuit came here to the ranch for his recovery after injuries, and then also in his retirement doing the work that retired champion racehorses do. And uh, now the house is a museum, and then next to it is another building that um, is currently being used as a charter school, and it's another example of one of the great programs that... Um, the Golden Rule community allows to happen out on the land that they own. And it's uh, homeschool support for kids that come to school part-time and get the social aspects of going to school. But uh, for a lot of the really rural kids, it's a very long drive to school from their family's ranches back in the hills out miles of dirt road. They don't have to come in five days a week. And then they, the parents get homeschool support. And it's kind of like a half-time school, half-time homeschool. I think it's a great, great program. And then this is the dining hall for the Golden Rule community, which I think, you know, back in the 60s and 70s had around 100 members living here on the land, really pushing for sustainability. And this is their kind of main housing compound where uh, sort of like the Golden Rule village, if you will. So here's all the pictures of Seabiscuit. Construction on the latest project here, the Grange Farm School, starts this weekend with the remodeling of the farm school house. Antonia sees the future about to unfold and cannot wait to get there. Those redwood trees are so amazing when you get under them and there's the creek flowing next to it and I just look forward to working here on August afternoons and taking our lunch break over there. Oh, it's going to be divine. So let's walk over here and... So just to the west of the field, oh look, over there. So there's white deer that live on Ridgewood Ranch. And the story I heard is that Charles Howard, as he was getting to be an older man, his eyesight began to fail. He loved hunting, but couldn't see the deer very well because our native deer are naturally camouflaged to our environment. And he imported white deer and they're easier to see and they've maintained a separate population and now 60 years later there's still a herd of white deer that uh, are, are living on Ridgewood Ranch and I see them regularly. This site here is just so idyllic that uh, I hope that we can have it open to, to people that are interested in building more connection with where their food comes from. This North Coast region is well-suited for agriculture. Farms are abundant, and so is activism. Mendocino County was the first jurisdiction in the United States to ban the cultivation, production, or distribution of genetically modified organisms, GMOs. 
Mendocino County is also famous for a thriving and rural counterculture known for California's hippie generation that led a back-to-the-land movement during the 1970s. I love Mendocino County. I love the ruralness, and sometimes I'll make jokes about how our phone book, White and Yellow Pages Combined, is smaller than half of a San Francisco phone book that's just the A through M's of the yellow pages. <laughs> and, uh, geographically, Mendocino County is bigger than all of the San Francisco Bay Area counties combined, and the total population in the county is under 90,000. And how concerned are you about drought? This last year was a low rainfall year, but we still had more than 40 inches. So when you compare growing in Mendocino County, where a dry year is a 30 or 40 inches of rainfall, and you look at how the majority of food grown in California is Central Valley and Imperial Valley, that um, Imperial Valley, they're getting their water from the Colorado River. It's piped in hundreds of miles, and their native rainfall is around, what is it, 10 or 15 inches a year? So even in a droughty year here, we're in a much better environment for growing food, at least in terms of water. Not so much in terms of season. We're, we're not going to have ripe tomatoes in June like they do. <laughs> we have frost up to May, so it is more challenging from a climate perspective. Our tour of the farm starts at so the this orchard. this is the orchard, and you can see the trees, or some of them, like this apple tree behind us, is humongous. It's got the beautiful lollipop shape from years of good quality pruning. The majority of the mature trees in the orchard are golden delicious apples. How do you keep worms away from the apples, out of the apples? We have worms in these apples, but not all the apples. <laughs> And I think that I'm just taking over management of the orchard this month. We're going to do a really good job with picking up the windfall apples that are on the ground below the trees. That'll do a lot to get rid of them and then taking them away from the orchard completely because the, the larvae for the coddling moth, that's the worm in the apple, is the um, caterpillar of a coddling moth. And they will also put out pheromone traps. Much like the pheromone advertisements you hear in Fancy Perfume, you can do the same thing with coddling moths and put a bunch of uh, sexy lady coddling moth pheromones out there. And uh, the Mr. Moth flocks to the pheromone trap instead of to uh, the real lady moth, and you don't get as many baby moths anymore. Worms are not the concern. The main challenge, according to Antonia, is fitting all of the farm components on just 10 acres. It's really not that big when you start figuring out where's the dairy barn going to go and where's the pig pen going to go and where's the vegetable patch going to go and where are the egg chickens going to go and where are the meat chickens going to go. And So pigs and chickens could be grazed under the trees in the orchard. And then we've got the house and the area around the house. And I would really like a variety of demonstration gardens as well. I want our curriculum to include things like, of course, plant nutrition and plant propagation, things like small engine repair and maintenance and other industrial arts. And marketing and record keeping. and How to become a vendor at a farmer's market and how to get your organic certification. But she also wants to teach philosophy and compare the USDA definition of organic with alternative certifiers, 
that have more sustainable practices embedded in their certification process. Where diversity is required, cover cropping is required, it's a peer review organization. Um, so there's other types of philosophy where there's, you know, at one end of the scale, there's standard commercial non-organic production. And at the other end of the scale, there's things like permaculture and biodynamics, where in the biodynamic methods, there's planting by the seasons of the moon and and understanding how astrology and energy vortexes affect the growth of crops and livestock. And I think that we want to find our nice place in the middle and not at either extreme, but I want to expose the students to help them have an understanding of the different philosophies that are out there. Her interest in teaching alternative and sustainable farming practices stems from her experience at Live Power Farm in Covalo, California, as a young girl. It made a lasting impression in her teaching methods today. Stephen and Gloria Decatur that own Live Power Farm are amazingly hardworking and dedicated people in their their farm where they don't use uh, fossil fuel driven tractors but use horses for traction. It's very progressive. I really appreciate the way they have a very complete and holistic farm system. So many farmers today get really specialized and when someone only grows livestock the manure becomes a liability rather than an asset, but on a farm that's mixed crops and livestock, the manure becomes an asset as fertilizer. And um, so many farmers get very specialized where maybe they raise livestock, but they don't produce their own hay, and everything that they're needing to feed their animals gets trucked in from off-site. And so this idea that they use at the live power farm of kind of a whole system where they produce the manure that they need to fertilize their crops, they produce the feed that they need to feed the livestock, and then the farm is open as an educational center and they have groups of all ages, a lot of Waldorf school classes from around Northern California, visit the farm for their farm field trip. And just the idea of a holistic farm that's much more of a complete system. And it's funny because in some ways that's very progressive and the way that new farms looking to be ecologically sustainable are moving. And in some ways, it's very traditional. And if you look at farms from 100 years ago, or any time through history going back beyond the Green Revolution, it's the way the farms were, and it's just normal. And it's kind of like we're going back to the way things used to be. Mm -hmm. So whether it's progressive or regressive, I'm not really sure. How much did that influence you as a young person? I grew up in the city, in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, and it never fit for me. Even as a child, I knew that I was more interested in living somewhere rural. And I just loved my time out in Covalo and Round Valley on the live power farm. And um, just the, the quality of the food, the experience of putting my hands into the earth and pulling up a carrot or walking through an orchard and pulling an apple off a tree and, and how much better that carrot was than one from the supermarket really inspired me to want to grow more of my own food. And just the, the quiet and peace and connection with nature and blue skies filled 
with stars at night the way you never see in the city and and just the the being outdoors in a clean healthy environment that's all nature and not so much concrete that white bird i didn't want to interrupt you oh yeah since we're talking about this sort of thing as we're sitting here on the ranch there is some unidentified large bird i'm not that much of a birder we think it's a raptor of some kind but it's mostly white and it's hovering like a kestrel and uh, hunting over the orchard for the farm school it's humongous it looks like it has a four foot wingspan or so oh it's hovering again it's amazing yeah really gorgeous so that type of experience, whether it's watching a huge, beautiful raptor hover over the orchard or taking a lunch break and laying under the redwood trees with my feet dangling in the creek or pulling a carrot that's sweeter and crunchier than any carrot I'll ever have from the grocery store right out of the soil, being able to gorge myself on fresh raspberries because there's more coming ripe than we're able to market in July. That's the rewards that I love from the farm, but also the teaching and the empowering people who are interested in learning about growing their own food, people who are interested in building the skills that that it takes to run a farm. In 2003, at home, I started hosting through the Uh, Worldwide Opportunities on Organic Farms, or WOOF program. And these WOOF travelers would come and stay with me. And sometimes there'd be a young man who had never run a power saw in his life. He couldn't tell lettuce from cabbage. He thought that garlic grew on trees. His cooking skills did not go beyond put a pop-tart in the toaster. And these young people that were full of great attitudes and enthusiasm and wanting to change from the very conventional upbringing that they'd had and learn more about sustainable livelihood would come and live with me in this residential program in my home. And I wasn't farming at a commercial scale. I had more of a subsistence scale farm, but you know, I'd put in 60 tomato plants every spring or so. So bigger than your average home garden but mostly just for canning and freezing at home. And these people would stay with me and they would help with building projects, whether it was hanging a new gate or putting up fencing or building a bigger tool shed and work in the garden, propagation, weeding, harvesting, processing, all that stuff. And and we'd build a bond. And so many of my woofers that have now gone on, there's a woman who went on to get a master's degree in environmental education and runs a school farm herself now. Oh, the girls all dance with the boys from the city. Woofers, W-W-O-O-F-E-R-S. Spend about half a day on a host farm. Learn about the organic and sustainable agriculture movement and receive room and board with no money exchange between hosts and woofers. And it's under my names And it's under my color And it shows on Sunday
programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread, located at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, now open Monday through Saturday until 2, with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries, with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. Being mixed race and also living in a household with two religions, I come from many different backgrounds, and I'm very proud of this, but also people try to categorize me or put me into a box and try to limit me to one of these backgrounds, but I, I want to be regarded as all of them. Meet this brilliant young marimba player who defies categorization when you join me, Christopher O'Reilly, for this week's From the Top. Coming up today at 2 on Utah Public Radio... research about having dairy as part of the farm school. My understanding is that if someone's doing hand milking, it's nice to have you know just one or two milkers and that the cow or goat develops kind of a relationship with them. Mm-hmm. And in many ways it's an intimate thing to do the milking. I think that dairy is so sustainable like I was talking about before out at Live Power with the whole system farm that if we're needing to feed a bunch of residential students, that if we're producing our own dairy, then we don't need to buy it. It makes the students eating, that sounds the rattling gate as we're walking into the orchard. So if we do dairy production, whether it's cow or goat or sheep, that the students can drink the milk, they can process the milk to make yogurt and cheese and butter and all those other products. And, um, and then when we make the cheese, if, for example, we make a hard cheese, what is it, something like 32 pounds of milk to make one pound of Parmesan? And the other 31 pounds is still very nutritious and all that whey, you know, whether it's a hard cheese or a soft cheese, you still get a lot of whey is so nutritious and we can feed that to pigs or feed that to chickens. And so the idea of dairy on the farm is very appealing to me in the sense of having a real complete system where the food that the students eat is largely produced on site. The school will start in 2014 with four students and Antonia says it will work much like the wolf program. So you can see through the trees up there just to the west of our field and just to the north of the orchard is a house up on a knoll surrounded by oak trees. And the house is going to be the commons for the students and the office for the school. And then around the house, we're going to put up uh, canvas wall tents. And it really helps that as temporary structures, they don't require building permits. The more intensive program will launch in 2016 our first uh, nine-month residential program that will be a lot more intensive. And one of the models we're looking at is uh, the very successful agroecology program at UC Santa Cruz. And they've been training aspiring farmers for decades, and their program is very heavily impacted. I think they receive something like 200 applications for 40 spaces every year. And so they're turning away many qualified applicants And this type of program is just hot. It's really in demand. There are so many young people 
with an interest in farming and not really good access to hands-on practical learning experiences. I went to UC Davis where I got a degree in agriculture and I think I could have gone through the whole program without ever sitting on a tractor. I chose to seek out some classes that had more of a practical application to them. But to me, it's amazing that our land-grant colleges are teaching programs that are so theory-heavy. I had a class in rhizosphere ecology, and I know the chemistry down to the molecular level of how plants are uptaking nutrients and the relationship between the fungus and the, and the plants and water and nutrient uptake. And I don't know that I changed many PTOs on a tractor, but I got a degree in ag. And then I went on to internships on farms to get a lot more practical learning. And I think to train the next generation of farmers, they need something more hands-on than what I got at UC Davis. And so what type of crops do you plan to grow here? We're going to grow a real diverse set of crops. A lot of our marketing is going to be done at farmers markets and at our farm stand. And so we want to have a wide variety. And so that'll be in the summer, tomatoes and peppers and eggplants and cucumbers and winter squash and summer squash and all those summer crops. We'll do the winter crops like peas and potatoes and cabbage and kale and broccoli and uh, lettuce and that type of thing when the cool season and then we'll grow perennial crops so we've got apples and cherries and pears and peaches that are in our existing orchard although it's primarily apples and then we'll plant more perennial crops like asparagus and artichokes and rhubarb and then I want to maybe do a trial on some organic cut flowers to sell bouquets I think that can sometimes be more profitable than vegetables and um, also having a lot of flowers on the farm attracts beneficial insects and some of them like the flowering tobacco can help repel pests and so a variety of flowers will um, add diversity to the farm and also can add more income in the form of selling bouquets of okay. cut flowers. And then will all the proceeds go back into the farm school? So yes, the, the proceeds right now, our plan is to have them go back into the farm school. I'm hoping that we'll get some donations so that we can start to have more of a scholarship fund. And what I would really like to do, if we can swing it financially, is to have the students pay their tuition and then they get a reimbursement based on the production of the farm so that the money that comes from the work of the students on the farm goes back to them at the end of the year. But right now, as we're just getting started, uh, we're gonna have to see what kind of donations and hopefully we get a wonderful endowment to allow us to offer that to the students. Back to the topic of diversity and growing those many different types of vegetables and fruits and what are the challenges of that? and insect control and because in you know the u.s has been secured so much towards monocropping and mm -hmm. um, how much more difficult is it to grow such a, a big variety mm -hmm. i think the main challenge with having a wide diversity is not with pests when there's a wide diversity of crops on the farm that pests are less of a challenge if you think of a field that's in monoculture let's say it's all 
broccoli. And you get a cabbage moth that's also a broccoli pest that gets into the field and it starts laying eggs and those eggs hatch. And then those new little caterpillars that are the larvae of the cabbage moth travel about and everywhere they go, they find more broccoli in the monoculture field. But if we have a diverse farm and there's a row of broccoli and next to it is a row of peas, it might be that those cabbage moths, instead of growing to maturity, eating a lot of the crop and breeding to make more pests, they travel off into the next row. It's not a crop that they're able to eat. And then the diversity of crops actually reduces the pest challenges. Where the diversity starts to create a challenge is that in commercial scale agriculture, when we go and buy crops at the grocery store, buy produce at the grocery store, oftentimes it's mechanically harvested. And when one farmer can climb up onto a $200,000 machine and drive through the field and harvest dozens of acres by himself in one day, the value of the labor that's gone in keeps the cost of the produce low. And I want to be training our aspiring farmers in methods that are economically viable. And they're going to have to compete with those type of producers that are using mechanical harvesters. And so if we have our, say, ears of corn, where it's someone walking through the field and pulling off one ear at a time, there's such a higher labor input compared with mechanical harvesting, where one man can, or one woman, <laughs> can harvest um, dozens, if not hundreds of acres in, in a day. And the specialized equipment that is used in larger scale, like in the Sacramento Valley, where there's hundreds of acres of all one crop, or go to Nebraska and look at the corn or, or so on, that, that the commercial large-scale producers producing large fields of monocrops, that they're getting really specialized equipment that allows for mechanization, much lower labor costs, much lower labor inputs, and that gets transferred into the value of the food that they're selling to keep costs down for consumers. And because we're smaller scale and we're very diverse, we're more ecologically sustainable, but it makes it more of a challenge for economic sustainability. Why do you think it's important to be going in this direction? What's your vision? So the vision for the farm school is that in future years, will be training the next generation of farmers. Right now, there are many more farmers in California and around the United States who are approaching retirement age than there are young farmers entering the field. So there's a high demand. We want to help with meeting the need to bring new, more young, aspiring farmers into the field of producing food. We want to be training more farmers in sustainable food production on how they can produce a diversity of crops on smaller scale and send them back out to their home communities to create more localized food production and increase community self-sufficiency. And I think it's important to be teaching more about sustainable methods just with, I think, the changes that are going to be coming in future decades with people talk about peak oil and how the uh, the cost of food production is going to be going up as so much fossil fuel is used in producing commercial fertilizers that, you know, the, the amount of fossil fuel that goes into a bag of commercial 
industrial nitrogen fertilizer is remarkable and that the average item of food on an American's plate has traveled more than a thousand miles. And so there's a huge amount of fossil fuel that's going into the transport of food, which is another reason why localizing our food productions creates greater sustainability. And the quality of the food and the nutrition of the food. And I know that my daughter, who's one and a half, eats her vegetables. She loves broccoli. And I think it's because she gets fresh, organic broccoli that we grow in our backyard or that we buy at farmer's market. And uh, someone in my life, I won't say who, I was at their house and they took a bag of frozen vegetables from the grocery store and they threw it in the steamer and put a little butter on it and put it in front of their kids and the kids didn't need a bite of vegetables. And I think it's because the quality from that commercial processed stuff is just not as good. It doesn't taste as good. It's not as nutritious. And and I like the idea of um, of changing the way we eat, that there are, are currently in America people who suffer from obesity and malnutrition at the same time. And I hope that by Im improving the quality of food that's available, of fresh, healthy food that's available in communities around California, that we can start to battle the epidemic of obesity and, and diabetes that we're seeing I understand that the generation that was born in the 1980s is the first generation in the United States to have a lower life expectancy than their parents. That there was a peak for people born in the 70s was the longest life expectancy, and it's been going down since then in the United States. Although lifespan has generally increased since 1961, it began to level off or even decline in the 1980s, for 4% of men and 19% of women. But after 1983, life expectancy declined an average of 1.3 years in 11 counties for men and in 180 counties for women across the U.S. Antonia is working to change those statistics. And one of her best assets for the job is a steady supply of a particular kind of waste. One of the things that makes the site that we have here on the Ridgewood Ranch, ideal for the farm school is that there's other established programs like the trail program for the therapeutic horseback riding and a goat dairy. And when I talked before about a, a monoculture farm that's doing only livestock, that the manure becomes a liability. And on a farm that's doing only crops, the fertilizer need becomes an expense, but on a diverse farm, they're feeding each other and the crop wastes that aren't being marketed can be used for animal feed and then it comes out the other end of the animal and it goes back into the field as, as manure, as fertilizer. And so here on Ridgewood Ranch, with the trail program for therapeutic riding and with the goat dairy, there are these mountains of manure. And as we're trying to take our new fields and bring up their fertility, it just makes me feel rich to look at these huge piles of poo-poo. And I think I am so glad that that's here and that I get to take it and put it in my field. Would you mind telling the, the story about the goats in Africa, right? I read an article. It was a National Geographic they talked about this village in Africa where each family would have a pile of manure in front of their hut. 
and the larger the pile of manure in front of your hut, the more status it gave your family as having wealth that you can feed your family. You've got plenty of goats and you've got plenty of fertilizer and, and it's it's a good thing to have a big pile of poo in front of your hut. And sometimes I think I'm a white woman, but I'm from that culture because I look at the big pile of poo and it makes me feel makes me feel good when I can back my truck up and I start shoveling out of that pile of poo and it's full of earthworms and I just think this is the best ever. And in our standard American culture, we, we have our equivalent, which is the pile of car payment you have next to your hut. And uh, I, I think I'd rather have the poo. That was Antonio Partridge, director of the California State Grange School of Agricultural Arts. I can be contacted at farmdirector at californiagrange.org. That's my email address. The sustainable food movement has strong roots in Mendocino County, and it is being nurtured in Utah as well, with small-scale localized farms flourishing in places like Cache Valley and Salt Lake County. At the same time, the Food and Drug Administration is proposing the Food Safety Modernization Act, which, if passed in its current form, will impose rules that could cost farmers thousands of dollars every week or month. Rules such as mandatory weekly water testing and treatment, wildlife monitoring, and rigorous manure and composting standards that conflict with already established federal organic standards. Stay tuned in the coming weeks for more information on the FDA Food Safety Modernization Act. The FDA is currently accepting comments from the public about the proposed rule through November 15th. Thank you for listening. Sherry Quinn, Access Utah. Inch by inch, row by row, gonna make this garden grow. Gonna mulch it deep and low, gonna make it fertile ground. Inch by inch, row by row, please bless these seeds I sow. Please keep them safe below till the rains come tumbling down. Pulling weeds, picking stones, we are made of dreams and bones. Need a spot to call my own. Time is close at hand. Grain for grain, sun and rain. Find my way in nature's chain. Tune my body and my brain to the music of the land. Inch by This Week in This American Life, our producer, Sarah Koenig, her mom has this list of seven things you are never, ever supposed to talk about because they are so boring. Never talk about how you slept. Nobody cares. Don't talk about your health either. Nobody cares. Um, your dreams. This week, cares. we take up the challenge. We look for non-boring stories on all seven topics and try to prove her never wrong. Talk about your period. Nobody cares. Sunday afternoons at 2 on Utah Public Radio. 
Welcome to Science Questions. This is Sherry Quinn. The notion of fire conjures up images of blazing forests, sounds of sirens and burning houses, or a warm campfire or fireplace crackling with sizzling hot wood. Fire symbolizes power, destruction, comfort, and life. Though known for devastation, fire can also trigger a rebirth, providing nutrients to parched forest floors where new healthy sprouts can take root and flourish. Science Questions is exploring an artistic side today, presenting two very different stories from two very different kinds of storytellers, a scientist and a writer, who are both enchanted by the ability of fire in nature to paint an entirely new landscape. Here's the scientist. My name is Mitchell Power, and I'm curator of the Garrett Herbarium at the Natural History Museum of Utah, and I'm also an assistant professor in the Department of Geography. I think we all have a fascination with fire. If you spent any time around a campfire at night, we all stare into the fire, and it has a very dramatic appeal. And, and maybe this is part from my family background. My father is a professor of theater, we grew up in a very drama-driven household where we were all involved in plays and Shakespeare and you know, we did all these great things as kids. At some level, you know, my interest in fire is, is that it, it does have this very dramatic appeal and I think that brings people in to, to curiosity about fire. But I think probably more importantly is that fire is a phenomena that is related to everything. Whether you have asthma and react to increase smoke from fire, or whether you grow grass seed in Oregon and burn your crops every year to rejuvenate the soil to grow more grass seed. or I mean, there's a million ways fire comes into our house or, or our life. You know, every organism out there has some relationship, either some strategy to take advantage of it or a way to hide from it or, you know, response to it. So. It's a very synergistic area of science. One of the coolest things about this particular location is the old shorelines that were put down by Glacial Lake Bonneville. And so just after the Ice Age ended about 20,000 years ago. And so we're actually walking right now on the shore of ancient Lake Bonneville. I'm just taking you up around behind the new museum into an area that just recently burned and start to get a sense of what happens when a fire moves through the, the foothill system. Fire, in, in my mind, it's a necessary piece 
of the processes that really drive ecosystems to be healthy, maintain diversity, a variety of habitat types, different ages of regeneration. It's almost like fire comes and cleans out the closet and allows you to unpack a bunch of new and exciting things. And you can consider fire as a process across the globe. You know, the, the estimates range from about 250 to 500 million hectares a year. That includes everything from tropical savannas to you know, boreal forests in Canada. That's how many acres burn every year. It's a global phenomena. We're in a stand of Gamble's Oak on the north face of the foothills here. What we see is a stand of Gamble Oaks with all the leaves on, but all the leaves are, have turned rust brown and died. Because this is north facing, the fire did not turn into what we call crown fire, which is when it consumes everything. So after the ground fire came through, the shock to the oak trees caused all of this dieback in their leaves. But as, as we walk up in there and you look underneath the canopy, you'll see there's a new carpet of baby oak trees. And they just what we call suckers or shooters and they pop up from the existing oak root systems. And so there's literally millions of new oaks that have come up as a result of this fire. And it wasn't very hot when the fire burned through here, so it didn't damage the soils. So the soils are, are ripe. In fact, the, the fires added a bit more nutrient to the soil. And uh, it's really, you know, a perfect spot for these um, oaks to explode into life. All of the new sprouts you see carpeting this area are already attached to existing root systems. What fire does is it creates a mosaic of landscapes. So you have new landscapes, old landscapes. You have a rejuvenation of vegetation in one spot where fires come through recently. And then in other spots where you haven't had a fire for 100 years or 200 years, you might have some, some older mature trees. You can have old snags where birds like to carve holes and, and nest. And so it's really the mosaic, I think, is the ultimate goal of getting fire in a system. As we round the top of this hill, these curled leaves are Gamble's oak. And the Gamble's has a very what's called a waxy cuticle, which is like a, a layer of wax over the leaf itself. The oaks are, are quite known for their high content of what we call volatile organic compounds. As you heat oaks, and it forces those volatile organic compounds to come out and it actually puts flammable vapors into the air. Firefighters have reported on having oaks explode into flames because the, the heat will force all of these organic compounds out and then they spontaneously combust. It, it, you know, my, my mantra has always been, let it burn. And I guess I have mixed feelings about that. You know, on one hand, by letting fires burn now, particularly in these lower elevation settings where we've had fuel buildup and we've taken fire out for so long, the let it burn approach can often do more damage than good because you lose habitat as opposed to gaining habitat. If you get away from these lower elevation systems, you get away from the urban wildland interface and you get up into the mid or high elevations, when fires start there by lightning, my perspective is yes, completely let it do what it's supposed to do. And it's ultimately, it's weather that will determine when the fire goes out. So I think, you know, in an ideal sense, if we didn't have this urban wildland interface and then this historical mismanagement of low elevation for us, 
a let it burn approach would be ideal and create the, the kind of habitats that we want. But because we've messed already with the system and there's a lot of people now living in fire prone habitats, we have to have a really mixed and adaptive management strategy. And I think too, it's a lot of just educating folks who choose to build their dream home in a uh, chaparral fire prone ecosystem well it's no different than building your dream home on a floodplain or on an earthquake fault there's an inherent risk that this is part of the system and that just be aware of that because those processes will continue to happen And for so long, we've been thinking of fire as a purely anthropogenic phenomena, that prehistoric people use fire, and fire was part of the Great Plains because the, the Plains people would have used it as a tool. And, but fire is really controlled by climate. People really, all they do is supplement the amount of natural fire that happens on the landscape. Using the 20th century as our base of knowledge on fire is not good enough because we've changed our relationship with fire in the 20th century and we you know we refer to fires now as catastrophic and in fact they're not catastrophic fires are more of a renewal or rebirth that was Mitch Power assistant professor of geography at the University of Utah and a research curator at the Natural History Museum of Utah. Thank you for listening. Science Questions is produced by Sherry Quinn, Susie Montgomery, and Elaine Taylor. Programming on Utah Public Radio was made possible in part by our members and the College of Science at Utah State University, where graduates' acceptance rates to medical, dental, and graduate schools exceed national averages. When students and faculty learn together, discovery follows. Information at usu.edu science. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. I'm Megan Van Frank. This week, learn how a military hospital in Brigham City helped wounded soldiers and transformed the community during World War II. First this. The Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by the Utah Humanities Council with support from a We the People grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. By August 1942, the United States had been involved in World War II for eight months. As British forces halted German and Italian advances in North Africa, the Bushnell General Military Hospital opened its doors in the northern Utah town of Brigham City. The hospital changed the town forever. Built on the south end of Brigham City, the Bushnell Hospital promised much-needed employment. Downtown businesses thrived with the influx of visitors and recovering soldiers. It also meant that Brigham City residents came face-to-face -face with people whose backgrounds differed from their own, particularly the German and Italian prisoners of war who came to work at the hospital. From August 1942 to its closure in June 1946, Bushnell Hospital served wounded soldiers from the Intermountain West, as well as from further afield. Wallace Doy, for example, was originally from Hawaii and served in the all-Japanese-American 442nd Infantry Regiment. Wounded in Italy, Doy and others from his regiment spent time recovering at Bushnell Hospital. 
Unfortunately, doctors were unable to save Doi's leg. Along with amputations, specialists treated tropical diseases as well as more serious neuropsychiatric disorders. In 1943, Bushnell became the first military hospital to regularly use penicillin, which may explain its unusually low death rate. Volunteers from Brigham City and surrounding communities spent time helping to care for patients and boosting their morale. Celebrities often passed through the northern Utah town for the same purpose. In December 1944, Helen Keller visited the facility. Keller had lost her sight and hearing shortly after birth. Her visit inspired soldiers, showing them that their lives could have meaning and purpose in spite of their physical and emotional challenges. Efforts were made to keep Bushnell Hospital open after the war, but the U.S. military finally closed it to build a new Veterans Administration Hospital in Salt Lake City. Research and writing for this episode of the Beehive Archive were provided by Rebecca Anderson. Sources and past episodes may be found at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, I'm Megan Van Frank. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan. Thank you.